This is Salt and Spine. No matter how perfectly the recipe's written, no matter how accurate you are with all the measurements, it's a different person in a different place using different ingredients so that they end up with something slightly different. So it's like you have to take into consideration all of the different reasons for a recipe to exist. For me, it's about keeping a sort of reality check on this is going to be someone at home making this. How can I make this the most delicious, the easiest, and something that someone's going to look at and say, that sounds delicious and I want to make it. Hi there, I'm Clea Worster and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a special episode, the first in our four-part series, Behind the Spine. We're stepping away from a focus on authors this month to hear from some of the other talented folks who helped to create the cookbooks that we all love. In this series, you'll hear from cookbook designers, recipe developers, literary agents, and photographers, all about how cookbooks are made, from proposal to printing. In today's episode, we'll start where most cookbooks begin, with the recipes. You just heard from today's guests, Maria Ziska and Lydie Hueck, who are both recipe developers and writers, as well as cookbook authors. Maria Ziska is the author of three cookbooks, and one of the recipe testers behind the cookbooks from Odalangi and the team at Tartine Bakery. You'll hear from Maria on what it's like to adapt a restaurant's complex recipes to a home kitchen and where she got her start testing recipes, with a letter to Chef Suzanne Goen. Lydie Hueck also started working as a recipe tester by writing a letter. Just out of college, she started as Ina Garten's assistant and confidant. Together with Ina, Lydie helped test and develop all of the Barefoot Contessa's recipes. Lydie talks with us about her work with Ina Garten, of course, but she also shares with us about her own process as a cook and a recipe writer for the New York Times. She's currently writing her debut cookbook. Lydie and Maria will get into the nitty-gritty details of recipe writing, how to know when a recipe is finished, and finally, they'll give us some tips on finding the best recipes out there. Hi, Maria. Hi, Lydie. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's cool. fun to be here. So before we get started talking about recipe testing, I just want to hear how you both came into the field of writing recipes and working as a cook in your own kitchens. The first voice you'll be hearing is Lydie. I was always just a home cook and I did a little cooking for fun in college and I wanted to do something fun afterwards and I didn't want a desk job. And I had this connection to Ina Garten, um, the well-known cookbook author. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to go and work for her and just see, like, there was just something so fascinating to me about her and about how much everyone loves her. And she ended up looking for someone to do social media. And so I started with that, but that quickly sort of turned into a recipe testing role because it was such a small company. And so I basically would make her recipes as she was working on them for a cookbook, as though I were a home cook guinea pig making the the recipe from a book um, without a photo, just the written page to make sure that things, you know, were clearly written. And then I would write down if I had questions or if anything was unclear. And then I did that for a few years and sort of in the process, I began doing my own recipes on the side just because it was fun to kind of take the process I was learning about and, and try it with my own ideas. And I started a food blog and I started just sort of cooking for friends and practicing this craft. And then I got a food column on delish.com. And then that sort of translated a few years later into becoming a recipe contributor to New York Times cooking to the website and the app. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of got me to where I am now, which is doing it for myself and the times and then working on my own cookbook. So that was sort of long winded. (laughs) No, that was great. It was 
it's awesome to hear sort of how you got your start and where you are now. Maria, what about you? How did you get into it? Let's see. I've always loved cooking and been pretty obsessed with recipes from a really young age. For some reason, I just really wanted to read cookbooks more than any other book, even as a little girl. And it's not like I come from a family of cooks who just talk about food all the time, or it's not a big part of my family's culture. So it was, I think, probably a little bit confusing to my parents to have this little girl who like begged, I begged my parents to subscribe to Gourmet Magazine. And I just wanted cookbooks for every birthday and Christmas gift. I also didn't have a model for what it could look like to have a job relating to cookbooks. Both my parents work in the sciences. So I kind of went through my high school and college education thinking that I was going to get a job that most people would recognize as a, you know, quote, job, pretty typical job. And that had nothing to do with cookbooks, of course. So I studied biology in college, and uh, I really thought I was going to go to medical school. I took all the pre-med requirements, um, and that was the plan. And then about halfway through college, I I met this, this boy who uh, is now my husband, and... Um, <laughs> He comes from a family of artists who are all super creative people and they saw me cooking and they saw me obsessed with cookbooks and they were saying, why aren't you doing something with this? Why aren't you pursuing something in this direction? And it was kind of the nudge I needed to really give it a shot, but it was terrifying because I cared so much about this this thing and I, I really wanted to have cooking be a part of my life in a day-to-day way. So I sort of tiptoed into it. Graham and I co-wrote a, a recipe column for the student newspaper. And we did like restaurant reviews, bad restaurant reviews. We wrote recipes. We <laughs> kind of covered everything. We made videos. And it was a lot of fun and I loved it. And um, And I felt more encouraged that this was maybe something that I could do. And honestly, looking back, I knew I had certain skills and I knew I was good at certain things. And I felt like maybe it was my best shot at having some success in a career, which, you know, I would define as being able to to do something that I loved and to make enough money to help support my family and to earn respect from people I respect in the field. I felt like it was my best chance to do this. So saved up money for a year to go to graduate school. And I started learning Italian because the graduate school that I wanted to attend is located in Northern Italy. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried a bunch of different jobs. I was catering on the weekends and saving money. And I worked in a couple of restaurants here uh, in the Bay Area. And I, you know, passed my Italian fluency exam and I, I went and got a, a master's degree at this kind of incredible university that it's called the University of Gastronomic Sciences. And uh, it sounds more elegant in Italian, the name, <laughs> um, but <laughs> they, it's all about food. Um, mm-hmm. And I was really interested in cookbooks and in writing 
about food, but I had classmates who wanted to do food photography or who were interested in winemaking or who wanted to cook and have their own restaurant one day. And it's this incredible place. I am lucky enough to now teach as a visiting lecturer. So I go back every year and get to see all my friends there. I graduated and I, as part of the program, I did an internship and all of my classmates to, to, we had to set up our own internships. We were responsible for figuring that out on our own. Right. And I wrote a letter to a chef who I really admired, who I really admire still. Her name is Suzanne Gowen and Mm -hmm. she has a few restaurants in Los Angeles. And I wrote her a letter and I, I said, I loved your first cookbook. She had already published Sunday suppers at Luke and I thought it was brilliant. And I told her about myself and how, you know, would love to work on cookbooks one day. And I ended up working with her on her next cookbook and I tested all of the recipes in uh, what's now the AOC cookbook. Mm -hmm. And that was my first real recipe testing job. And from there, it's just been one book after the other. And I feel so fortunate and grateful that I get to do this every day, this, this job that I I had no idea even existed when I was little. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. You both have really similar stories about how you initially did the first recipe testing job, just like reaching out and being like, Hey, can I work with you? I think it speaks to like how mysterious this industry is from someone on the outside, like that we both came Mm -hmm. into it, just knowing I want to do this and not knowing like the different exact paths, but just starting with idea and then like writing a letter to someone. I think it's so funny that we both did that. And then uh, when you're in the, I know. when you're in the industry, you you like quickly learn. Okay, there's like stylists and photographers and testers and all these different jobs. Right. Like, I would have had no clue about any of that before I started. I know. And writing a letter, it makes it sound like that was the 18th century, but this was just you know 10 years ago. I just really right, love right. letter writing. <laughs> totally, it's the personal, nice personal touch. So when you, all right. You got your first job as a recipe tester. What did that look like day to day? You got a piece of paper with a recipe on it. What do you do from there? What's your job? So I would say it it begins with getting a piece of paper. And this is, I'm so curious to hear Maria, like how yours differed, because I only have worked for one one person in this sense, but I would get the piece of paper. I would do the shopping. And so that was actually a huge part of it was like, okay, reading the ingredients, can I understand what I need to buy? Or do I have any questions? Can I is there anything I can't find? And, you know, the more you do this with one person, you get to know exactly like what they mean. But, but the idea is like, if you just have the piece of paper, can you do it? So I would go shopping, get the ingredients. And then I would usually be recipe testing alongside Ina at her, her barn, her house in East Hampton, where we lived. (laughs) I know. And so I would be, she'd be working on something over here and I'd be working on something like on this side. And so I, I was so nervous in the beginning because I was like I, can't, like, I can't cook in front of her and I can't, what if I screw this up? But really what I learned over time is my whole job was to screw it up in a way, because mm-hmm. if I screwed it up, then there may have been something that could have been written a little more clearly, or like there may have been, I have, may have had a question that I didn't even know was a question. I just went forward. So that took a lot of the pressure off that if I, if I had an issue that may have meant that the recipe had an issue. So I would make it all the way through and then I would read through the recipe just for any sort of editing things, any typos. And then we would try it. And it was 
I would say it was part recipe testing, part recipe developing, because usually by that point, the recipes were completely perfected. But as the years went on, and I had done this a lot with Ina, um, sometimes I would come in a little sooner and we would make it and taste it. And then she would say, okay, I think it's great, but I want to go back and tweak a few things. And so she would make it again. So it was like, it became, it became sort of a hybrid of like recipe tester and also sort of working with her on some of the recipes. Yeah. That's so cool <laughs> that you had a hand on Ida Gordon's recipes. That's a cool job. We always had lunch after. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. That sounds awesome. It's like a perfect day. <laughs> Maria, what about you? What was your first job like recipe testing? So my first experience was a lot like what Lydie just described. When I was working with Suzanne, she, had, like Ina, had experience writing recipes and publishing books before. So she kind of knew what she was doing. And it was a great mm-hmm. first job because I, I got to learn from someone who had already gone through it, you know? And um, she would would write the recipe, print it out. And then um, similarly, I would cook it uh, in her, we were working in her house. Um, And I would, I would cook the recipes. I would do several during the day. And then we would sit down together at the table at the end of the day and taste everything. And I would ask her questions about points in the recipe where I was confused or where I thought she could add clarification. And in my case, it was, it, almost felt like translating in a way because the recipes Mm -hmm. came from her restaurant. So they started in the restaurant and they were going to be published in a cookbook that was intended for home cooks. And a lot had to happen in that process of moving from one place to the other, Mm -hmm. mostly just that the, the way that you would cook in a restaurant is quite different from the way you would, you cook at home. The quantities right. are a lot larger. The tools are different. Most home cooks have one large pot, for example. And if you dirty it in the beginning of the recipe, you probably have to wash it if you're going to use it again. But in a restaurant, you could just grab a new pot, things like that. So <laughs> it felt a lot like translating. I think that's the closest way to describe that work. And I have mm-hmm. since collaborated with several chefs who have restaurants, and it's always a little bit different. Sometimes they're really organized like Suzanne is, and things are printed out and recipes are written down. Other times, most of the recipes just live in the chef's heads and nothing is written down. Right. Um, and then that's kind of a different process of getting the recipe out of their head and onto the page. Yeah, it sounds like a much different process, like a lot of communication, <laughs> trying to make yeah. things like, real not in the book. I'm curious, it sounds like the types of recipes you'll have like worked on are very different in terms of Ina just giving you like a very neat printed piece of paper versus like being like, all right, so like, what are you making right now? How are you doing it? Talk to me. I'm curious, in the first stages of your recipe testing, or Marie, in your case, writing it down, what kinds of things are you tuning into? Are you focusing on what sorts of like problems or questions arise for you throughout a testing process? Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel like every book I've worked on, I sort of had to learn a new language, that being the person that I'm collaborating with, the chef, their voice, really. And I 
spend a lot of time in the beginning of the process getting to know them and really understanding their approach to cooking and how they think about things. And it helps inform the recipe writing because if I understand their kind of general philosophies, then I might know what to do if something happened in the recipe. Like if something cooked a little too long and it was burnt, I might be able to predict what, how to correct that in the recipe for that mm-hmm. specific chef. Um, so it kind of feels like, like, oh yes, I learned how to speak Suzanne's voice and then I learned how to speak Russ's voice. And if I were to write this recipe as Jessica, this is how I would do it. And it's like all these different voices in my head and very different approaches to, to cooking. Um, and so it, one thing that's really cool about it is it never gets old because there's always Mm -hmm. something new to learn. Um, and I've learned so much from each of each of the chefs that I've been lucky enough to work with. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Just (laughs) like living in a bunch of different worlds all the time, which is for me, one of the things I love about cookbooks is it sort of like comes in and you get to try on someone else's kitchen for a little bit or incorporate new realities into your own kitchen at home. So it sounds like you're on the front lines doing it. Lady, I'm curious in your experience, like writing your own recipes, how does that feel differently than working along Ina? Like, do you feel like you're sort of developing your own voice as a recipe writer and really figuring out what it looks like for you versus how it would have looked for her in her kitchen? That's a great question. I mean, it's funny when I first started doing recipes, doing my own, I'm sure they sounded exactly like Ina because that's who I had learned from. And those were the recipes (laughs) I was working on at my job, nine to five. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it, it was a great way to learn. And I think it's taken time to develop my own voice and to phrase things in different ways. And it happens naturally, the more you, you do it and the more, you know, you kind of, what I like to do is think, okay, how do I explain this? Like if we're, if we're, I was working on a chocolate pudding recipe and I think like, okay, how can I try to explain this to a friend when it looks like it's done? And Mm -hmm. I'll sort of write down what I think the instructions are and then go back over them and kind of edit them and work on them because it's a mix of your voice and also an instruction. It's Mm got to be clear, but you also are bringing your own perspective. And as Maria said, like some chefs are a little like more loosey goosey in directions. Some are more specific. And so I think over time, just as you create recipe after recipe, your, your own voice and style emerges But I will also say that when I started doing recipes for the New York Times, they have a very different style than Ina and then what I consider to be my own style. It's very sort of more sparse, very direct. There's not Mm. a lot of extra language. They're meant to be sort of precise and as brief as possible without losing the details that you need. So going back and forth between doing the Times recipes, which I still do, and then my own recipes is sometimes hard and I get like garbled and I've <laughs> got to like read it later because it is, you do want to be consistent within a project, whether it's like the recipes that you're doing for someone's book or for your own book or for the New York Times, like you want to be consistent throughout the recipe and throughout the recipes, plural. So every once in a while, I'll go back over and read something and think, oh my God, that's so not like <laughs> the way I say Or for example, the Times says when you're turning on the oven and there are directions, it says heat the oven to 400 degrees. Whereas I learned from Ina and I still do in my own recipes, preheat the oven. So it's like Mm -hmm. those little details that probably 
most people would look right over. I feel like it's important to maintain a sort of consistent voice. And that can be a particular challenge when you're working on different projects at the same time. Earlier today, in preparation for the interview, I was reading a piece about, I think it was your piece, Maria, about preheating versus heating and really having some sort of qualm (laughs) about being which one is it? Why and when do you use which? It just sounds like... What is the answer? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you brought this up because... These are the little so things funny. that I think about all day long. So I teach this class at at the university in Italy, and it's on recipe writing, and have thought a lot about this topic and what what makes a recipe a good recipe, and you know how can you tell just by looking at it if it's going to work out? Because there's so many recipes on the internet now, and you can find them everywhere, and and I think. It, a lot of us are just sort of filtering through like, what is this one good? Is this one going to turn out or not? And it's so important because if somebody is spending the time and the the money to, to buy ingredients and to cook something, I really feel a huge responsibility to them to have a recipe be delicious and work as it says it does and have it look like it does in the photograph. So I think, you know, these are small details and, and little things that you might think just looking at them one by one, but all together, they are what make recipes great and what infuse recipes with people's voices and, and perspectives and style. And, and I think it, it you know it's easy to be like oh who cares but actually all together these are these are the details that really do matter yeah yeah i mean it makes a difference i'm wondering too if you can get down to like every last detail as a recipe test or as a recipe writer you know you're really sitting there worrying about is it preheating is it heating am i going to describe it this way or that way how do you know when a recipe has finished when do you feel good like all right i'm hitting send it's getting printed it's done. I'm walking away from it. When does that point come for y'all? Um, Lighty, we can start with you. I like partially a gut feeling. I mean, I make it, I always err on the side of making it more than I think I need to because it just makes me feel better. Like I never want to submit a recipe that I don't feel like is perfected. I mean, you could go on and on and testing something a hundred times. I think that there are always certain things I'm looking to solve as I work on a recipe. Certain questions I have in my head, is this the right amount of salt? Is this the right amount of time in the oven? Is this the the best way to combine these ingredients? And And so as I'm going along working on the recipe, I'm sort of answering those questions. And I think I get to a point where I've sort of answered all my questions and I feel like it works. It's delicious. The writing in the recipe has been perfected. And I think... Like I said before, the more you do it, you do get to this point where you're like, okay, I know it's it's good, but it's only through working on them over and over again that you kind of can compare to another recipe that you knew wasn't done. I just get to a point to where I'm like, this is as good as, as I can make it. Just to, to go into one specific, I'm working on a, a recipe for a sheet pan sausage with roasted sausages with apples and fennel and onions. And it's such a simple recipe. Like it's all on a sheet pan. It has some time and mustard, but it's nothing too complicated. But I kept having this issue of the sausages don't brown enough on the sheet pan by the time they're they're all cooked. And so I tried, you know, trying to heat up the sheet pan and putting the sausage on like onto a hot, dry pan. And I tried doing all these different things. And it's like, I get to the end and, and 
for that recipe, I really wanted it to be a sheet pan weeknight dinner, not something that involved splattering on the stovetop and then transferring <laughs> to the oven and doing two different pans with the fennel. Like there were a lot of different solutions I could have come to. But for me, what was the most important was that this is like a really minimal effort, maximum result type recipe. And it was delicious. And the sausage wasn't brown the way it would have been if it were fried, but it was still delicious. And to me, it looked great. So it's like, you have to take an into consideration all of the different reasons for a recipe to exist. And I think sometimes you can get into a situation where you're trying to come up with this perfect solution that then isn't really realistic for a home cook. For me, it's about keeping a sort of reality check on like, this is going to be someone at home making this. How can I make this the most delicious, the easiest, and something that someone's going to look at and say, that sounds delicious and I want to make it. So it's a lot going on, but I feel like as you work on a recipe with all those things in mind, you do get to a point where you're like, okay, good to go. Marie, do you have, have you had a similar experience or what types of context do you take into account? It sounds like Lydia, you're really like advocating for your home cooks when you're writing a recipe, which I'm grateful right. for as a home cook. <laughs> Is it similar with you, Maria? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Lydia, you've, you said it so, so beautifully that if you think about the audience, you think about the readers of the recipe and you think about the point of the recipe existing. You know, why do we need another chocolate chip cookie recipe from you, for example? And you know, what makes this one special? And then there just sort of naturally are questions you're trying to answer that come up, right? Like, is it that you want to keep it on one pan, as Lydie said? I guess there, there are parameters that you're working within. And then you're, you're sort of solving for how can I get to this, the place where I'm trying to, to get and how can it be the best version of this thing for the readers of, of this recipe? One, I have some, I now do a lot of recipe testing for British books that are published in the UK Mm -hmm. by British authors. And then an American publishing company wants to, wants to make an American edition. So I'll adapt all of the recipes for American readers. And and then there are some very obvious differences that have to be accounted for in testing, like just the ingredients are different, for example, in the UK and in the US. They have different size eggs than we do, for example. They have a whole wonderful range of creams, single cream, double cream, and we just have the one heavy cream to work with. So (laughs) so there's sort of these, they just come up problems that you're trying to solve in the testing process. And then, yeah, as Lydie said, it's a lot of trial and error. And the more you do it, I think the better you get at predicting what, you know, where the roadblocks are going to be and how to work your way around them. When you do a cookbook, like just for home cooks, not a cookbook that's affiliated with a restaurant, it's, it's a hundred percent like, you know, new recipes that are created with the home cook in mind. I'm curious in your experience working on restaurant cookbooks, there's a balance, I assume between, okay, this is a dish that we serve and are famous for, or this is one of our favorite dishes that we want to put in our cookbook. And then in translating it for a home cook, there are maybe certain elements that change to make it more accessible for a home cook. But how do you find that balance between presenting the recipe for the dish in the restaurant or that the restaurant is known for and deciding when and what tweaks to make for a home cook without losing some of the original aspects of the dish? 
Such a good question. Yeah. Where is that line basically of recreating an identical replica um, or adapting it to something that people at home are actually going to have the time to and the energy to do? I think it really depends on the chef and the restaurant. Sometimes I've worked mm-hmm. with people who are pretty adamant about wanting the food that they have in their restaurants to be exactly like the food that you would make if you followed the recipes in their cookbook. And that's important to them. I understand that. And and in that case, we stay as true as we can to the uh, methods that they're using in the restaurant kitchen. Other times people will say, you know, it's really important to me that, that home cooks can make these recipes on a weeknight. And in that case, then there are a ton of changes that happen. And the majority of cases fall somewhere in between those two, where you're, it's, it's a conversation between the two of us where I'm saying, I'm advocating for the home cook and I'm saying, you know, I would hate to take out my food processor and have to clean it just to chop this parsley. Can we do it by hand with a knife? And, you know, and it's, it's a debate. Almost every topic of every question that comes up is a debate and a back and forth. I have really high standards for recipes and I demand quite a lot from them, even more so now. I had a, a baby boy this past year and I have so little time and I think I have, as I get older, I think I have less patience for those like multi-day, dirty every pot and pan you own kind of recipes. So I, I probably am pulling from that side where I'm trying to bring the recipe over toward home cook friendly in most of, of my work. I'm Clea Worcester, Salt and Spine producer. You can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nozrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash salt and spine. You both mentioned a little bit like trying to imagine yourself as the person cooking from the recipe. I mean, you literally are in a lot of cases the person cooking from the recipe, but you're sort of trying to proactively solve problems for people. I'm wondering how much you feel like your, your work as a cook and as a home cook just sort of like how much you come into a recipe, um, especially when you're working on a recipe for someone else or like when you were working on Ina's recipes with her and you started to play more of a developmental role. Um, yeah, like how much of you does it feel like there is in a recipe when it's when it's complete? 
I don't know that I have like a huge range of answers. And when I was working with Ina, my intention was just to be like a tool, like someone making it, but not someone who was really like imbuing the, the recipe with, mm. with personality. I was more of like a test case for the recipe than someone who was like contributing that much because I didn't really, at that point, I didn't have much of my own style to contribute, but and then when you do your own recipes, it's like 100% used. But Maria, I'm curious how, how you've felt with the different projects you've worked on. Yeah, I wonder, Lydie, too, what I would love to know what that process was like for you to go from working on Ina's recipes to then developing your own voice. And, and how, how did that go? Was that easy? Did you feel like, oh, I know exactly what I want to, to make <laughs> of this recipe? Or did, how long did that take? What was that process like? It took a while. I mean, I remember when I first started writing my own recipes, one of my biggest challenges was like, what should I make a recipe for? What is my perspective? Like when when someone tells you or asks you like, can you come up with three recipe ideas? No parameters. It's hard. It's like, it's like creative writing, right? Like if someone gives you a prompt, you can turn out like five pages quickly because you have focus. And so having the focus of like working with the New York times or like the more I've done it, the more I'm I'm able, I know what my taste is and and what kinds of recipes I want to do. But in the beginning I was kind of like, okay, I I enjoy doing this, but I'm, you know, in my twenties, I don't know who am I to give you a recipe for this sort of thing. And so what I, what I think I struggled with was like, I can do the technical part and definitely, as I said earlier, I would I would like read it back to myself and say, okay, does this sound like Ina? How can I make this more sound more like me? So I wasn't just like creating recipes that were basically like versions of hers. But I I think like the voice part definitely just came naturally over time. And with the ideas, it's just you gotta just dive in. And even if you don't think it's that good of an idea, if you're just starting out, do it anyway. And then you'll have another idea. I think it's, there's a little bit for me, I'm a perfectionist and I think that is a good quality for this career, but like (laughs) you can't be overly, you can't be afraid to try and mess up and have an idea that maybe isn't the best idea. And I also think you can't be afraid to decide halfway through a recipe that for whatever reason, like it's not going to work. Every once in a while, there's a recipe that's just something about it that just isn't working. And I think I can be hard on myself. Like I've got to, I've got to solve this because it's fun. It's like a challenge, but then other times there's a reason that it's not going to work and you just have to be like, all right, let it go onto the next. Um, so yeah, I can't remember what your question was. No, that's so true. That, that willingness to just keep trying to, you know, do it again and again and again. I think that is so important for this work. And also the the sort of lack of like an instant gratification has been a really important skill for me to cultivate because books, you know, they take so long and it's like, I might this week cook something in my kitchen that is delicious that I'm really excited about. And then nobody will know about it until two, three years from now, though there's a lot of patience too, I would say. <laughs> it sounds so much like like a scientific experiment or something. I know that cooking like literally is science in some ways, but it's so interesting to hear you guys talk about isolating a problem and, and trying to figure out like what that problem really consists of and then imagining potential solutions within limits. I'm wondering, 
from test to test, how do you like determine it's like, okay, like I got the sausages to brown. Now my question is like, I want there to be like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example of a question you might ask, but maybe you guys are finding one. Cooked in the time that the sausage is done. Like when, yeah. how early do they need to go on the pan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It is like, it's funny, Maria, that you, that you have two parents who work in science and you almost ended up in medicine. Yeah. I do feel like there is that, that experimental element and, you know, you're like isolating a variable and <laughs> like you've got your hypothesis. It's funny. It It's like, it is scientific and baking so much more so, but as much as I think people say that like baking is science and cooking isn't because cooking is a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Writing a recipe is like, it's an exact science because you have to kind of like assume that people are going to deviate a little bit and you want to make this thing that is like as close to being perfect as you think it can be knowing that it's going to go out into like many different hands and many different experiences of cooking and you want it to like be the best it can be in all those situations. So it is sort of sciencey. I know it's funny in hindsight, I can put together, I can like connect all the dots of, Oh yeah. You know, I took this, <laughs> like all those chemistry labs I took actually are things that I use now in my work, even though at the time I never thought I needed to know. Um, the scientific method or, you know, I take copious notes now and I, it, it is all connected. Absolutely. And I, I think that one thing I've realized recently is that recipes are different from something like, you know, let's say in a chemistry lab, if you were following some kind of procedure to make, uh, you know, following a formula of mixing different things together in a, in a beaker. It's, it's actually really different from a recipe in one key way that I see, which is that every time someone follows a recipe, it's going to be slightly different. No matter how perfectly the recipe's written, no matter how accurate you are with all of the measurements it's a different person in a different place using different ingredients, using a different stove and all of those things add up so that they end up with something slightly different. And I, I used to think that that was a problem, that that was something I was trying to account for and correct for in, in the testing and in the recipe writing. But I actually now see it as a really beautiful thing that I, I almost have 180 and I kind of lean into that in a way where I'm trying to infuse the recipe writing with as much information and guidance and generosity really that will help people who are cooking it at, at their own in their own kitchens to make it the way that they want to make it you know to build in some flexibility to add a little bit more salt if they like salty foods or to cook the egg a little bit longer if they don't like runny yolks, things like that. That's a really good point. You want it to work for for all the different people who are making it. You can't possibly know what everyone's taste will be. And there are like a lot of famous things we know people don't like, but to, to make a recipe flexible, definitely, I feel like makes the cook feel better making it. Yeah. And like less intimidated. 
that it doesn't have to be so perfect, that they can do it is a huge part of it. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost like, yeah, it's almost like I used to think that, that a recipe that was replicable infinite times was a good recipe. But I actually now think that a really good recipe is one that anyone can, can follow and, and can lead to a bunch of different, slightly different, but all delicious results. That's like a harder task in some way. Cause you, <laughs> there's just definitely variables and yeah. Yeah. You have to be really open-ended and imaginative trying to see like where your recipe could end up. Yeah. Cause you, you also, you want to be flexible, but you don't want to be so like so flexible and give so many suggestions that someone is like overwhelmed or that they, I feel like there are a lot of suggestions and substitutions you can like safely make in a recipe given your experience cooking. But then I sometimes I find it hard to know, like, I don't want to suggest something that I haven't tried or that I'm not sure. I don't want to send someone down a path that is not going to be successful. And yet I completely appreciate the leaving room for people to make it their own and make it work for them. So that's like a, it's like a line that you have to toe between making it clear for someone who just like wants that simple recipe. Like I always think about my mom. She is not a very confident cook and she needs like every, every question you could ever imagine. She'll, I love when she reads my recipes because she'll be like, is the skillet covered or uncovered? And I'm like, well, you're just sauteing onions. So uncovered. And I would never, I don't necessarily take all of her edits, but (laughs) that's like one kind of who's nervous and needs to know exactly. And then a lot of cooks are like, can I just throw in these peppers if I have them? And that's who I probably gravitate more towards, but you've, you, you've got to try to appeal to, to everyone in some way. Yeah. Or at least accommodate. Yeah. I, I feel like I have a really good idea of what you both think a good finished recipe is. What does a bad recipe look like to you? Like, have you ever written a recipe or gotten a recipe to test where you're just like, Oh no, like we're going to have to do a lot of work here. You want to take this one, Maria? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I, yes, there are so many bad recipes out there. That is true for sure. I think that I'm, I'm proud to say that I, I feel like I now have somewhat of a superpower where I can kind of just scan something and be like, this isn't going to (laughs) work. Or, you know, Mm. this is, this recipe doesn't look like it's been tested very well. And I think that just comes from having spent years looking at recipes and, and cooking and, and, you know, I can kind of sort of do some predictions now that helps with my work for sure. <laughs> what are some of the things that you notice? I'm just curious. And for, for people who are listening, who are like looking at a recipe on the internet or in some old cookbook, like, are there certain things that jump out of you that are like a little sign that it may not be yeah, th- uh, tested this is, or well-written? This reminds me of, I, I was talking with a friend who's a, a copyright lawyer and we were talking about recipe copyright and, and sort of all of the, Mm -hmm. there's a a whole nother conversation to be had around that. But, uh, there was somebody else in the, on the call who works in the U S copyright patent office. And she's a lawyer as well. She said this thing that I thought was so true, which is that the, the better the recipe, the, the more, detail that's in the recipe writing, 
the better protected it is under law, under copyright. And I think what she meant was that if you add details to the recipe that are personal things that you've learned from cooking it, like you know that if it starts to make a bubbling sound, that means it's done and you should turn off the heat. Something really specific like that adds so much value to the recipe and it also helps protect the recipe because it makes it unique and it makes it special and original. And so I, I love that there's this dual quality, you know, that that the the better the recipe is, the more protected it is. And, and I, I think that that probably summarizes what I'm looking for when I'm looking at recipes. I'm looking for things that are unique, that are generous details provided by the person who wrote it. If it's something that I've read a thousand times, like, you know, I don't know, salt the pasta water so it tastes like the sea. It's like, I've seen that before. You didn't come up with that yourself. And so I guess I'm looking for, I'm looking for uniqueness. Yeah. Or like, or like the chicken (laughs) until cooked through or something like some big assumptions, like old, you know, those old, I love old little recipe books. And so often it's like a whole cake will be one paragraph recipe. And it's like, bake until done <laughs> yeah. or something like the opposite. <laughs> no timing cue, yeah. no visual hints, nothing. Right, right. Done. <laughs> yeah. I think that speaks a lot to how much recipes have changed recently. I mean, over time, but I think especially in the past five or 10 years or something, cookbooks have gotten so much more rigorous. And even just like the recipes on a website, I'm thinking of stuff like salt, fat, acid, heat, or like the food lab that are just so specific Mm -hmm. and so interested in teaching you the process as a cook. And it used to be before, hope someone taught you how to do it because I'm not gonna, (laughs) here's here's your ingredients, go for it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I love the food lab. I feel like I could just, as someone who who does this and I don't necessarily understand every scientific like cause and effect that's happened when you cook, when you learn about it, it just, it makes, everything makes sense. And it just helps, like it helps you think about the way, you know, once you understand how vegetables brown in a hot oven or what happens to chicken in a dry pan, like it's just, just changes the way you think about writing recipes. I feel like that should be required reading. Salt and into the food lab. Yeah, those are. That's actually my last question for you all. Are, are there cookbooks that you lean on and love, or look to as sort of a guide for how you want to write your cookbooks, or even just that come into your kitchen regularly? <laughs> oh my gosh, so many! Yeah. My personal favorite uh, cookbook. This has been my favorite for so long. Is the Zuni Cafe cookbook? It's not a new book. You're not going to find it on like the best of this year lists, but it's beautiful and it is just packed full of information. And I, I've probably, you know, it's one of those books that I've read cover to cover countless times. And still every time I pick it up and flip to a new page, uh, flip to a page of a recipe I've already read something new jumps out at me, something that I didn't see before. I'm always learning something from that book. And I think that's why I love it so much. Yeah, it's a, a great one. <laughs> it's one of my favorites too. It doesn't even really know. have any pictures, <laughs> yeah. right? I know. <laughs> I know. Just good writing. I feel like... <laughs> And good and good food. I feel like I like to 
cookbooks for different reasons. Like I have my go-tos that I love the recipes in. Although I do feel like, I don't know how you feel, Maria, but I don't make other people's recipes that often. By the time I'm done recipe testing, I just want to make make something up, you know, like be really loosey goosey. Like I'm, I think when you do that for work, or at least for me, sometimes like by the end of it, then I just want to like go crazy and experiment and have fun and not be bound. (laughs) Not write everything down. But I do love cookbooks. (laughs) No measuring salt by the quarter teaspoon. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Totally, totally. I feel like a lot of the cookbooks that are my favorite are the ones with really great stories. Like, and that's how I first got interested was looking through my mom's cookbooks and looking at Ina's cookbooks and like reading the head notes, reading the chapters, like the stories behind the food were such a draw for me. And I think are one of the major reasons why cookbooks are so much, have so much value and are different from just Googling a recipe because mm-hmm. you get to know them writing them. You get, you feel like you have, I'm not going to say like a relationship with them, but you feel like you know them and you trust their, their work. Uh, their taste and that they're going to not lead you astray and getting to know all the little funny stories and inspirations behind recipes are is like is a really fun part my favorite one that no one's I don't know if, if anyone has this I don't even know where I got it I feel like I've had it for my whole life is a cookbook by Roald Dahl the children's authors like daughter maybe granddaughter I don't even know but she's British and she just tells these like hilarious sort of like self-deprecating stories throughout. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've ever made it that book, but I just love it. And I, it's like a little treasure. And I, I just think it's because her voice comes through so clearly um, in this book. I love how different the choices were, but like the through line is the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a good book that you can come back to really. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. It's been so lovely talking to the both of you and it's it's just been really fun. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's so nice to talk to someone so about recipes. <laughs> Can we do this every week? And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned next week. We'll be looking at the logistics of getting a cookbook published and talking with Diane Jacobs, author of Will Write for Food. You can find bonus content from our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com slash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Cleo Worcester, and our host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers virtual and in-person classes for home cooks. Find more at thecivickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.